Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Klobis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Carlos K. Hill, author of the book, The 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre, A Photographic History. Carlos, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you for having me, Mark. Well, thanks for agreeing to be on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Yes, um, I am associate professor and chair of the Clara Luper Department of African and African American Studies at the University of Oklahoma. Um, my area of expertise is the history of lynching and racial violence, uh, with an emphasis on the anti-lynching movement. And uh, you know, beyond sort of you know the scholarly work that I do, um, I do a lot of work in the community, particularly to try to advance social justice issues um, within within Oklahoma, especially within Tulsa, Oklahoma City. So, um, so the so the, a lot of the work that I have done uh, in those communities uh, is reflected in the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre: a Photographic History. What inspired you to produce a photographic history of the race massacre in particular? You know, I'm not from Oklahoma, only came to Oklahoma uh, in the fall of 2016 to take a job at the University of Oklahoma. Uh, but shortly after arriving here, I made a trip to to Tulsa and it was a kind of a transformative trip um, because I um, heard Tiffany Crutcher speak, uh, who spoke eloquently about Terrence Crutcher, her brother, who was shot and killed by uh, a police officer in Tulsa. Uh, Tiffany has uh, since then uh, become one of the foremost and fiercest um, sort of advocates for um, sort of um, defunding the police, as well as sort of uh, inst- you know transformative institutional change in terms of policing. And so I was inspired by her witness uh, to know more about uh, Tulsa. Um, and But ultimately, I think it was my interactions uh, with uh, some of the key stakeholders uh, in Tulsa around the history of the race massacre, uh, listening to them tell stories about what occurred, listening to members of the community that I came in contact with talk about the history, as well as just walking around the Greenwood District, uh, where you see m- murals and memorials to this history. Um, I just was inspired by what I was seeing and what I was hearing uh, beginning in 2016 and into 2017. And so uh, by the summer of 2017, I had kind of decided that I was going to to write a book on the race massacre. I didn't know what it would look like. I didn't know how I was going to actually accomplish it by the centennial. Um, but I was certainly inspired by the community um, uh, to do so. It's a very interesting book, and it's one that I uh, want to get into more detail about. But before we do, I was wondering if you could give us a brief overview of the uh, Tulsa Race Massacre, uh, how it began, uh, what uh, happened uh, during those two days, 
and then a bit about the uh, aftermath. So give us a, a frame of reference before we delve into the photos themselves. Yes. Um, so the... Tulsa Race Massacre, I believe, is the deadliest outbreak of anti-Black violence in American history. And I would say the the deadliest single sort of instance slash outbreak of anti-Black violence in American history uh, that resulted in a 35-block area uh, being completely destroyed. Uh, over 200 businesses wiped away, um, over 1,200 homes uh, burned to the ground. Um, and nearly, we believe, 300 uh, people uh, killed as a result of the violence. And so, uh, you know, on May 31st um, and June 1st is when the violence and destruction uh, occurred to the community. That violence was sparked, that violence was provoked by an allegation that a Black a uh, young man, Dick Rowland, um, had sexually assaulted in an elevator in downtown Tulsa, a white girl, Sarah Page, who was, uh, I believe, 17 years of age. And so uh, the allegation uh, that Sarah Page had been raped by a black man, a black young black man, Dick Rowland, is what sparked um, the, the violence. But um, I would say that the the the, the real um, reasons for why the massacre occurred and why it escalated was because of the deep resentment uh, that whites uh, had or held toward uh, the the Greenwood District, or you know, more affectionately known as Black Wall Street. And so, um, you know, the provocation was the allegation of rape or assault. Uh, but the deep causes for what occurred was the resentment that whites had toward uh, Greenwood slash Black Wall Street. And so in the book, I try to tell that story. Um, it, and, and, and I say very, I try to say very clearly in the book that the, the massacre is an extremely important moment in the history of the Greenwood community. Um, but for, for for Greenwood residents, telling the story of the massacre um, is not um, representative of who they are as a community. Um, and what they're typically uh, suggesting or getting at is in the aftermath of the deadliest outbreak of anti-Black violence in American history, um, the community uh, rebuilt itself. Uh, twenty, If you fast forward 20 years after the race massacre, uh, Greenwood was larger, had more people, um, wealthier, had more businesses. Um, and, you know, the community uh, experienced beginning in the 1940s all the way to the 1960s, uh, a renaissance. And so the story of rebuilding, the story of the renaissance is the story that the community um, often likes to tell, uh, because in the telling that story, you get to understand the courage, the grit, uh, the resilience, uh, the quality of the people who called Greenwood home. And so for, for, my, for my book, it was really important for me not to just tell the story of the massacre, but to tell the story of how Black people in Tulsa uh, responded to what occurred to them. And so um, 
I, I tried to do that um, as as um, skillfully, as carefully as I could, because uh, more than anything, um, I wanted this book to not just reflect my interpretation as a historian, but I also wanted to mirror uh, the ways in which the community uh, tells the story, understands the story uh, of what occurred to them. You tell the story uh, in a variety of ways in your book. You uh, summarize the history of the the race massacre. You have a lot of excerpts from uh, the, the testimony of survivors, both uh, contemporary accounts and uh, oral histories that were uh, taken in the 1990s. But you also uh, have this very fascinating uh, examination of why we have this visual record. And I was wondering if you could perhaps explain uh, why it is we have so many photographs of this crime, uh, how it was that these photographs uh, survived to the present day. And, and also the, the, the part of the story you get that I thought was most fascinating, the, the, the hints that we have that there's this even greater photographic record that might still be out there that uh, for, uh, for whatever reason, we still don't have access to. Yes. So when I think about uh, the Tulsa Race Massacre, and particularly the photographic legacy, um, when I think about it, I frame it around um, and in relationship to the history of lynching uh, and lynching culture. Uh, lynching culture um, was a lot of different things, uh, but a big part of it was photographs, uh, lynching photographs, photographs taken of lynch victims and the mob who uh, who killed them. And so uh, lynching photographs in many ways, particularly in the 19 teens and 20s, um, is a is a staple, is is a is a core part of uh, lynching culture. And, you know, the reason why uh, whites took photographs of black lynch victims or lynched black bodies um, was to project uh, white supremacy. Uh, was to inscribe themselves as defenders of the community, defenders of white womanhood, to to capture the ways in which the the, the best citizens, right, of the city or of the town had 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 come together uh, to punish, to expel a dangerous black person. These were things that whites were proud of. And that whites wanted to, in fact, brag about um, through taking photographs of, you know, black people who they had, um, who had, who they had killed, um, who they had reasserted uh, control over. And so lynching culture was about terrorism, It was about, um, you know, punishing black bodies. But at the end of the day... It was about um, projecting white supremacy and allowing whites opportunities, uh, creating opportunities for whites to document um, their, uh, you know, their participation in this uh, culture, but also to inscribe themselves in this culture in ways that were very visual and very compelling. And so... Uh, this is why, you know, there are, you know, there were hundreds of photographs of lynchings taken um, during the lynching era, which, you know, is about 1880 to 
1930, although some would say it stretches into the 1950s. Um, but Tulsa, you know, and the Tulsa Race Massacre falls squarely within uh, the era of lynching. And certainly, you know, uh, the photograph and the photographs and the photographic less legacy left behind by the massacre is in line with um, is in line with lynching culture. And so um, I was, uh, you know, my background as a historian of lynching was really helpful in trying to make sense of these photographs, because otherwise it would it would appear strange that, you know, whites would, uh, you know, take pictures that document, you know, their participation in criminality, right? Burning and looting and killing, uh, destruction of property. It would it, it's it's my, it would be mind blowing for why would someone incriminate themselves? We have to step back and think about the ways in which whites understood photography as a way to to valorize the violence, celebrate the violence, um, and in 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 a very insidious ways um, perpetuate that violence through photography. I think that comes across very well in your in how you use the captions to describe what's happening in certain photos. Things that, if you study it for a long period of time, you might pick up on, but you make it very clear. And once you make it clear, it seems so obvious about how in so many of these photos you have there's a very conscious pose by, say, the the uh, armed posse members or mm-hmm. the national guardsmen who are brandishing weapons, oftentimes. Uh, you know, w- with uh, you know a, a group of, of of black people in view, you know, one armed white man with a shotgun, you know, mm-hmm. uh, towering over uh, a group of of you know basically prisoners, and, and how that you know underscores the degree to which you know the power is being projected through that image. Yeah, I mean, the, the photographs um, in the book are some of the most compelling images that I reviewed as I sort of, uh, you know, study the more than 500 images that I was able to access through the Tulsa Historical Society, the University of Tulsa, um, and the Oklahoma Historical Society. There were probably six other, six or seven other archives that I consulted and, and, and gleaned some images from, but the majority come from those three places. And uh, my challenge was to try to not just, you know, find or identify the most compelling images that help people to understand uh, the white supremacy um, that uh, produced uh, the race massacre, but also images that would help us to understand the black experience of what occurred. And so I was trying to select photographs that could do both. But ultimately, my goal um, for the book was to center the perspectives of of victim survivors and their descendants, try to tell the story as powerfully as possible uh, through through photographs that would then help explain, um, you know, what occurred to Black people uh, who who were killed during the race massacre, but also uh, were fortunate enough to survive the race massacre, and so the photographs are ch- a challenge to do that. 
because most of the photographs created, um, uh, you know, during this time um, were by whites. And in those uh, photographs, because of that, carry with it um, the kind of white gaze, what white spectators, what white mob participants wanted us to understand about the Mary's massacre, not, you know, the perspective of, of, of sort of, of, of um, black Americans who suffered from it. And so it was very, it was a challenge to try to, to try to walk that line. But I think because of the selection of, of oral history testimony that's provided, that really makes clear and really makes, you know, in, in some really visceral ways, what they experienced as a result of uh, the violence, I think there's a way in which, uh, at least partially, the white supremacist narrative that the photographs were meant to um, to provide is disrupted, um, and a pers- and and the the uh, the accounts of survivors uh, just briefly, just temporarily disrupts that that white supremacist gaze. Uh, and allows us to see the images from the vantage point of victims and survivors. And so the, the reason why so many, um, quote, you know, quotes uh, from survivors were included is because I really wanted the testimony to really um, allow readers to reinterpret um, and reposition the photographs in ways that told the story from the vantage point of survivors. I like uh, another of the methods that you use to do that, which is by starting not with the massacre itself, but giving your readers an opportunity to see the Greenwood District as it was prior to May 31st, 1921. And the photos uh, that you have there, are I I just find to be really fascinating because they uh, convey uh, something of that, that you know, prosperity and, and, and pride. I'm thinking in particular of the, the photo you have of uh, John Wesley Williams and his wife when they're uh, sitting in their car. And it, it, uh, to know that, you know, back then car ownership wasn't quite as widespread as it would become even by uh, even a decade later. And yet to see someone, you know, proudly uh, dressed nicely, sitting in his car with his family, it really does convey something of that, that, that sense of what had been accomplished in the community by the people who lived in it. Absolutely. Um, one of my uh, frustrations uh, in, in doing a photographic history is uh, of, of the race massacre is there was there are so few photographs of what Greenwood looked like prior to the events of May 31st and June 1st, 1921. Uh, there's just a handful of high quality images that could be reproduced for a book. Um, and so I was frustrated by that, uh, particularly because there's so many images of the destruction. And so, uh, m- you know, I really wanted to devote a whole chapter uh, to that, but I didn't want it to just be uh, images of, uh, of Greenwood residents. I wanted to actually show what the community looked like, what it would have maybe even felt like uh, to traverse Greenwood or even Greenwood Avenue, um, you know, prior to 1921. But I wasn't able to do that. Um, and so uh, I, I, I included the 
this small number of images uh, because I want at the end of the day, I wanted people to understand that the story of Greenwood doesn't begin and end with the race massacre, um, you know, in you know, in, in roughly a decade or let's say, you know, maybe 15 years, um, the Greenwood district um, becomes one of the wealthiest black communities uh, in the country, not the largest, but one of the wealthiest uh, in the country. And this is um, this occurred because of the quality of the black people uh, that migrated uh, to to Oklahoma and then ultimately uh, to Tulsa. And so by including an image of of, uh, the Williams family, um, as well as the Dreamland Theater, I was trying to give uh, readers a taste of the quality of the caliber of people who called Greenwood home, the caliber of people who were killed um, in the violence, the caliber of people who ended up rebuilding Greenwood, uh, despite the fact that they had no assurances that the the violence or a mob attack would would ever occur again. Um, and so, uh, you know, for me, it was very, very important to make sure that, you know, People understood that there was something uh, that uh, there was a community there before, a vibrant community there before uh, that was destroyed, but then ultimately uh, rebuilt. And that chapter then is immediately followed by uh, the one detailing the massacre itself. And you, I, you begin with uh, some testimonies, and then gradually you insert the the images I, I was wondering if there were if there was an image or two in that chapter that uh was uh, that that you found particularly powerful or uh particularly symbolic of what you uh, of of you know what was happening during the massacre and and which you think really you know conveys the message especially the message you're trying to convey with the book Yes. Um, on page, I believe, 59, there's an image, of a postcard, in fact, uh, that's who's that caption. The caption reads uh, running the Negro out of town or out of Tulsa. Of all the images that um, I uh, reviewed uh, and ultimately utilized in the book, that one is the one that um, speaks to me the most uh, because what what I have this what I discovered um, in talking with residents, uh, descendants in particular, but also in just sort of reading um, all the historical accounts and especially um, survivor accounts, um, what became clear to me that it, it and then also you know, anchored in, in, in that photograph, what became clear to me is that this wasn't just a violent attack on, on a prosperous community um, that resulted in a, a 35 block area being destroyed. Um, what began to dawn on me is that this was an attempted expulsion of black people from Tulsa. And when you think about the context, it makes sense because 
next door to Oklahoma is Arkansas, where several black communities um, during the 1890s, as well as the first decade of the 20th century, were expelled, were violently expelled from, from those communities. It occurred also in Missouri. Um, and so Oklahoma's next door neighbors uh, had a history of violently expelling black communities after an allegation uh, of, of, of murdering a white person or a sexual assault uh, of a white woman. And so, you know, it was, quote unquote, in the water in this region. This is how you respond to, uh, you know, black criminality. And so it became clear to me with that photograph that this is much more than a race massacre. This is more or less a community lynching, right? And when I say that in the in the epilogue, what I'm trying to get people to understand is that the purpose of the violence uh, was ultimately about driving away black people, um, you know, forcing black people, this community. Uh, of nearly 11,000 out of Tulsa. And so for me, that's what makes um, the violence uh, unprecedented, um, you know, because you can, you can kind of, you know, carefully review the record of anti-Black violence in this country, and you'd be hard-pressed to find a similar instance uh, with a with a similar size community, similar kind of affluence, um, that white whites, uh, particularly a white mob, attempts to expel uh, from its community. And so, for me, for all those reasons, that photograph really tells the story uh, of what actually happened. Um, but fortunately, um, you know the survivors of the race massacre believe that their community was worth fighting for, was worth preserving, and no matter, no, uh, no intimidation, no, no violence was going to, um, was going to change that. And so for me, you know, chapters uh, five and six uh, in the photographic history are the most important chapters because it, embodies, um, for me, uh, the story that victim survivors and descendants have wanted to tell about what occurred. I was, that, that photo I shared was very striking, and I, but I was, didn't really make this connection until uh, you were uh, describing it and, and I looked it up. But it, I remember when I f- uh, first saw it, it looked familiar and I couldn't figure out why. And I realized it, it is so evocative of what the images you would see a decade later for the Dust Bowl. And I, I was thinking about that, what things that makes that photo so powerful is it is one of the ones that best conveys the scale of what's happening. It's not the only one that you have of, of Greenwood burning, but it's one of the ones, it's, it's almost panoramic in terms of its scope. You have this wide back shot, you can see some people on the road uh, looking at it, but you really, you have this, just over half the image is just these billowing uh, uh, clouds of smoke that are coming up that are like the dust clouds. It, it gives a sense that we're not just talking about one building or one house or one street. We're talking about the entire neighborhood and, and you see it not just in terms of the buildings that are burning, but how it's just, you know, clogging the sky with, 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 with what's taking place. And, and, and yet 
as you uh, then go on to do in, in, in the second chapter is you you, t- you show what happened to the people who weren't killed. And this is part of the story that, I, that you know, I, I, is not as familiar to people who might have a, a passing knowledge of it, which is how the people that weren't killed were then rounded up and interned. Uh, by uh, the authorities, by not just the, the the police or the National Guard, but by people that they had deputized to, uh, and, and how they had to then go and effectively uh, find someone to testify for them, not, you know, a black person, but of course, a white person to, in order to, you know, be allowed to uh, have their freedom. Yeah. I mean, the, the story of the massacre uh, is so much more than the, burning, the looting, and even the killing. Um, it, is, it is much deeper, um, and it's much more, I think, uh, treacherous. Uh, and I would even say from the vantage point of victims, or excuse me, from survivors, uh, a deeply humiliating experience because as their homes are being burned uh, down, uh, destroyed, as their businesses are, uh, they're also uh, being stripped, effectively stripped of their uh, of their civil rights. Um, they are, you know, being rounded up. Whites are, you know, are the white mob. White authorities are moving house to house. Um, you know, you know, removing forcibly removing in many cases black people from their homes. Uh, many, you know, most black people are have barricaded themselves in their home. They're afraid to come out. Because if they come out, they could be shot and killed. Uh, or they could be hit by a straight bullet that wasn't meant for them. Uh, because there is, you know, active machine gun fire. There are, you know, projectiles. You know, some have argued bombs uh, that are being dropped uh, on the community. And so this is a chaotic and dangerous moment. And so black people, I think, wisely were remaining in their homes. Um, and even fighting back from their homes and businesses. Um, but ultimately, um, because, you know, uh, and I try to really emphasize this point in the introduction, because uh, uh, the invasion or the attack on the community was coordinated, um, and it was, um, you know, not only was it coordinated, I, I talk about it as a kind of intentional military style assault. Um, you know, the, you know, many in the community stayed within their homes until they absolutely had to come out until they were absolutely forced, uh, to surrender. And upon of surrendering, uh, you know, everyone, whether they were a man, a woman or a child, uh, was detained. They were taken to, uh, with their, you know, they were forced to show that they had no weapons and then forced to hold their hands above their heads for the duration uh, of, of their trip from their home to the detention center to show to show to whites that they posed no threat. And of course, as this is happening, as this is happening, uh, as they're being sort of paraded through the streets of Tulsa as kind of this defeated group, um, whites, even white children are, are jeering at them or yelling at them, screening obscenities at them. And this experience, um, coupled with the, you know, watching their homes, their businesses be destroyed, watching loved ones being killed in front of them, this, uh, you know, this totality of the experience is what makes 
um, the race massacre such a wounding um, experience. And so when I think about what all survivors had to go through, what they would have had to sort of process and endure, uh, you know, in the aftermath and how if it were me, um, I wouldn't I don't think I would have had the resolve or the strength uh, to turn the other cheek uh, and roll up my sleeves and get to work uh, rebuilding a community that had just been destroyed. And so um, it, it the story of courage and resilience is, is so remarkable. Uh, and, and, and for me, that is what really has inspired me uh, to do this work. Um, and I think will inspire me to continue to write about, talk about um, the 1921 Tulsa race massacre well beyond, um, you know, the centennial. It, it, roughly half the book, it, you know, talks about that aftermath. And one of the things that, that also was a revelation for me was the role of the Red Cross in this effort. It, it, I, I was thinking as I was looking at the the pages and, and your and the description that you have of the activities, how much it was like disaster management. How there was this short term need to feed refugees to to provide for them to to give them housing and then it, how you arrange the photographs in a way to show how from that initial effort began the reconstruction process began the process of rebuilding the community converting the the tents into temporary homes and then going from there to begin the process of putting the community back together yeah i mean there wouldn't be a, a greenwood um, without uh, the American Red Cross, I believe, um, black people um, who, you know, black survivors um, would have just simply had very little support um, to 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 not only rebuild, but just to, you know, have medical attention, to have food, to have some basic shelter without the American Red Cross, the the humanitarian assistance, the humanitarian efforts uh, would have been stalled, would have been, would have, you know, maybe never even happened uh, because, you know, this, the, the city, um, while it proclaimed to the world the day, the days after the race massacre, that it would, um, that it would, you know, provide assistance to survivors. It would help the community rebuild, um, it became clear in the days following that that wasn't going to happen. Um, the energy that the city um, is expending is a is a is around, um, you know, putting up barriers to the community rebuilding, not helping the community to rebuild. And so, the American Red Cross was able to kind of cut through some of that and provide the much needed food, medicine, shelter. Uh, for for the victims um, of, of the worst race massacre in American history, and so you know, you know, because of that, you know, these survivors talk about uh, you know the American Red Cross as the angels of mercy or as angels of mercy, um, because without them, um, it would have been uh, extremely difficult given the level of hostility 
uh, that existed at the moment uh, in the white community towards Greenwood, it would have been extremely difficult to rely on, uh, you know, city leadership or or even philanthropic groups within Tulsa to do the same. And so, you know, I think the 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 moniker Angels of Mercy um, is a well-deserved uh, one for the American Credit Cross and how they responded. I think one of my uh, favorite pictures uh, in your fourth chapter is the one on page 187, where you have uh, uh, Buck Colbert Franklin and uh, Isaiah Spears, the two attorneys who are reestablishing their law office in, in a tent. And you have uh, their, their secretary uh, in the, uh, you know, between them. And I, I find it just such a great picture in a lot of ways, because not only do you have that you know that sense of it of how they're 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 picking up they're they're getting started. But as you explain in the caption, that this was an example of how the residents of Greenwood fought back. You, you described how there were efforts to put uh, building codes in place that would have made uh, re- uh, rebuilding uh, prohibitively difficult. They fought back against that. Uh, they fought back to uh, you know they, to uh, sue the city of Tulsa to mm-hmm. receive some sort of compensation, and, and it's, it's that one picture I think is so nicely encapsulated in a way by showing how these uh, you know three people as individuals are picking up and you know using the the, the tools of their uh, community, the the laws of their state to try to uh, you know reclaim what they had lost. Yeah, I mean, the, um, you know, Greenwood, um, the Greenwood district, as I mentioned, uh, wouldn't have survived the race massacre without the assistance of the American Red Cross. Um, but it wouldn't have also survived without the efforts of black leaders within the community um, fighting uh, on, on legal grounds um, for, you know, for the community. And so, um, the city, uh, excuse me, the mayor of Tulsa, uh, along with uh, some very prominent business leaders, desired to convert uh, the the business district or the first two blocks and then the areas surrounding them into a train depot or an industrial depot. Um, you know, Greenwood was situated in a really strategic area. It was between downtown and the railroads. And so for white city leaders, uh, the Greenwood district and its business district was in the way. Um, Tulsa had grown since the founding of Greenwood. Uh, Tulsa had discovered oil since the founding of Greenwood or the area around Tulsa had discovered oil. And therefore those, you know, the, the community was in this area of prime real estate. And so the mayor, as well as some of the business leaders, saw in uh, the massacre, the complete destruction of this community, an opportunity to rezone the area, but in rezoning the area, push the Black community out of Tulsa, or at minimum, to push it more north. And so without the work of B.C. Franklin, uh, Buck Colbert Franklin, uh, who was a lawyer, who was the father of John Hope Franklin, who become, you know, you know, the quote unquote father of African-American history without Buck Colbert Franklin and his legal work to 
uh, initially get the um, that the fire ordinance, as it was called, temporarily uh, a temporary injunction upon it on technicalities, but then ultimately to get it invalidated because it was you know the 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 district judges, the three district judges who decided it, believed that it was unconstitutional um, for the city to impose such a um, a, an ordinance, given the circumstances, um, that saved the Greenwood district. And so um, I would say the one-two punch of, of, of saving the Greenwood district was the American Red Cross. Um, and if they, without them, Black people would have been forced to go elsewhere to find the support that they needed. But luckily and fortunately for them, the Tulsa-based American Red Cross uh, as well as a national organization, because it took the it took um, support from the national organization because the needs were so great um, in the community. Um, without them, community wouldn't have been able to rebuild, and certainly without the leadership of blacks like Buck Buck Colbert Franklin and others, um, you know, tr- seeking to uh, invalidate uh, the fire ordinance, the community wouldn't have been able to rebuild. One of the things you do in the book that I think does a nice job of conveying the process of reconstruction is you have photos of certain key buildings. And I'm thinking, for example, of the Williams Dreamland Theater or uh, the Baptist Church. And you you were able to find photos of what they look like beforehand. You have uh, photos of what happened to them uh during the race massacre. But then you also, in that final section, have photos of the reconstruction process. And it, it, it it's very, it's fascinating to see these and kind of is because that, that it's a great visual timeline of that process of achievement, destruction, rebuilding, and, and how by the time you get to the end of that chapter, you see the Greenwood Street again with all the buildings up again and that process of, of, of recovery well underway. Yeah. I mean, I'm, it's remarkable how quickly um, Greenwood residents were able to begin to rebuild. I mean, you know, days following <laughs> the massacre, <laughs> Black people, uh, Black, you know, survivors are building temporary structures, uh, putting up tents on, on the sites where their homes used to be. Um, same with businesses. Um, so that a year after the race massacre, um, the Dreamland Theater um, is nearly, I think, I believe, fully rebuilt. Um, you know, s- you know, several businesses in the kind of uh, what we call Deep Green, with the first couple blocks of the community, uh, had been rebuilt. Um, and so, you know, and also, and also, homes were temporary structures. Um, we're transitioning, you know, a year later from those temporary structures to to actual homes. And so for me, it's it's truly inspiring to see just the kind of tenacity um, in the face of white intransigence uh, that Greenwood residents uh, displayed. Um, it's not it's it, I, I would say it's not uncommon in the black experience. But when you see it up close, when you study it up close, when you get to know uh, intimately some of the individuals um, that responded in that way, uh, you can't help but to be inspired. And so, um, you know, I think often 
particularly when I'm tired, particularly when I don't want to do something that I should do. I often reflect on uh, survivors and what they endured um, to sort of encourage me uh, to move forward. So um, I think there's a lot to take from this history than just the knowledge of what occurred. Um, there's so much that um, we can learn from the individuals uh, who, sur- who who died as a result of the violence, but also those who survived and then responded to the violence um, and the destruction thereafter. And so for me, that's, um, I, I think uh, this book emerged from the inspiration um, that I have experienced, continually experienced as I sort of reflect on um, you know, survivors and how they responded. I, I think you do a really nice job of conveying that in the uh, final chapter where you have the pictures of the survivors that were taken, uh, you know, decades later, the pictures that were taken in the 1990s, early 2000s. And, and it really does, you know, in, in, in the way you couple that with excerpts from their testimonies, it really does underscore that point that you're making about the you know, importance of the of the survivors and, and how they persevered through it without never forgetting uh, what they went through. Yeah, for me, um, it's the reason why the images are so important, and they are also. And I don't really speak to this so much. I may I may have a passing mention mention of it, but the smiles of survivors, um, you know. There, those individuals had loved ones that were killed. They were nearly killed. They, they witnessed their beloved Black Wall Street destroyed. Um, they participated in its rebuilding. They saw its reemergence um, as a community. Uh, and they were a staple part of that. And so for me, you know, it was important not just to share photographs of them, but to share a photograph of them smiling and to, sh- and to show how those individuals, despite what happened to them, um, was li- lived these lives of resilience, lived these lives of great substance. Um, and the smiles helped capture that, um, you know. And so the, the book, in many ways, um, is devoted to victim survivors and their descendants, um, but especially the survivors who had to endure the aftermath of the deadliest race massacre in American history. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Oh, I have too many projects. (laughs) (laughs) Too, too, too many. I'm overwhelmed by the, the work that I need to do in the next two to three years, but the as 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 much as I am uh, committed to telling the story of the race massacre, um, I'm well. I should say for the race massacre, I'm working on uh, a, a a white eyewitness account of what occurred. Um, we wanted to perhaps have that ready for the centennial, but uh, it was just it's just too much work to do to get that ready for publication. And so that'll come, you know, in, in, in maybe a, a two or three years, uh, uh, you know, from now. Um, but what's on my heart and, you know, what's, you know, what I think about daily is the story of Clara Looper in the 1958 um, Oklahoma City sit-ins. 
Um, I'm contracted with the University of Oklahoma Press to create a new edition of Clara Looper's account of the 1958 sit-ins, you know, Behold the Walls. And and so I'm really excited about getting that book out um, to the public um, by the hundred, by Clara Looper's hundredth birthday, which is June of uh, 2023. And so um, that's the, 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 my, you know, I would say most important project at the moment and looking forward to sharing that um, and maybe coming back and talking about that with you uh, in a couple years. I'd love to have you back in a couple of years to, uh, to talk about the book. It sounds great. Oh, Carlos Hill, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you, Mark. Thank you.